Hello, and welcome to Public Key, the podcast from Chainalysis. This is your host, Ian Andrews. In 2022, we saw the failures of several centralized crypto exchanges and service providers, which has led many consumers choosing to move towards self-custody wallet options and increasing use of decentralized exchanges. In this episode, I'm joined by Salman Banai, head of policy at Uniswap Labs, to discuss the latest developments at Uniswap and how policymakers are approaching regulation of DeFi platforms. Salman takes us back to the origins of DeFi and the practical use cases around the world for these protocols to benefit consumers. He also explains how the transparency of decentralized protocols could be a huge advantage for those that are underbanked and completely unbanked. For more on these topics and all things crypto, I hope you've started planning your trip to New York for the Chainalysis Links Conference. It happens April 4th and 5th, and I want you to get your ticket today because I'm expecting the conference to sell out soon. You can find registration details in the show notes. Today, we have a return guest, one of my friends, former colleague, now the global head of policy for Uniswap, Salman Banai. Salman, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Ian, for having me back. I'm very excited. The, the podcast has been a success. We've done uh, about 40 episodes since you were last here, so hopefully we've gotten better. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that everybody listening to this podcast has heard of Uniswap. I'm curious, your role, I know what you did for us, your role at Uniswap, because decentralized protocol, what are you actually working on these days? What's keeping you busy? Yeah, so on the commercial side, what we're focusing on is making the Web3 experience easier and better and safer for the users of app.uniswap.org. We, we recently, for example, in partnership with MoonPay, provided on-ramp functionality to the Uniswap application. So that's exciting. For that, we, we launched uh, NFT capabilities, working with our friends from uh, what was formerly known as Genie. You guys acquired Genie, right? That's right, yeah. Yeah. Back in the fall, I believe. And you're going to see, we have quite a bit in the pipeline. So stay tuned for more exciting Web3 tools coming from Uniswap Labs. On the policy front, we had quite a 2022. We went from, you know, legislation like DCCPA and stablecoin legislation seeming imminent to post FTX, everything kind of being put on hold. Um, And now we're expecting, you know, a number of hearings um, here in the US on FTX. But in Europe, you know, we saw real progress. They passed MICA, which is the first real effort to comprehensively regulate digital assets and digital ass- centralized digital asset service providers. So that's very exciting. They also have a, an explicit carve out for truly decentralized finance. And then they also came out with a report on, or the European Commission sponsored a report that's looking into how regulators might go about regulating permissionless protocols, open source based protocols, uh, which is also uh, exciting. So we're starting to see more and more tangible ideas in terms of what good regulation for DeFi looks like. Because before this, it was all, if you squint your eyes hard enough, DeFi kind of looks centralized. And so let's just use those old tools (laughs) and uh, regulate protocols as exchanges and things of that sort. I'm super curious. Crypto broadly is is a complex concept if you're not living in it day to day. And I think one of the things I learned from you is most people in legislative or policymaking positions, they've got hundreds, if not thousands of issues they're kind of challenged to understand and take action or comment on. It must be a challenge in your role to try and get people not only to understand crypto, but then understand what's unique and different about DeFi. When you're having one of those conversations, you know, maybe in the first 
or second meeting, like how do you even describe what Uniswap is? Can you give us the soundbite on on how that conversation starts? <laughs> I mean, you've heard of the the parable of the the three blind men and the uh, the elephant. <laughs> That's um, right. So there's different ways of describing the elephant, and I think you know we can step back and understand DeFi in in number of different ways. But I'll use one or two examples. So example number one is post financial crisis. We saw a lot of policy making around financial reform, and I was involved in that. And we can speak about how that affects my view on things. Then we have kind of the technology response. And so we had alliance of cryptographers, cypherpunks coming together to create the Bitcoin protocol, which was a peer-to-peer payment system that would eliminate the reliance on the types of intermediaries, i.e. banks, that failed during the, the financial crisis. Um, and it's no coincidence that I think on, on the first block written on the Bitcoin blockchain, there's some metadata that links to an article, I think it was in The Guardian, talking about, I think it was the nationalization of uh, the bailout of another bank in the UK. And so the replacement of intermediaries that operate as institutions, as for-profit corporations with uh, executives and directors and employees. Our regulatory system was based on regulating those types of entities which performed a particular function in our our financial system. What Bitcoin represents is replacing those functions with open source, transparent, self-executing code that you can rely on because that is what the algorithm produces. That's what the, the, the code produces as it executes. It also creates a capability through the use of private keys to custody your own assets in a digital way. And then those innovations carried through to the Ethereum network, which added this capability of the Ethereum virtual machine, which has the ability of executing smart contracts in the process, consuming ETH tokens as gas for those transactions. Um, and so the ETH token, one, it secures the, the validity of transactions under the new proof of stake model, but also enhances the security of the network through the gas fees, which incentivizes the development of robust code that doesn't fall into never-ending loops, uh, which for those of us that have coded uh, is is one of the uh, the compiling errors you can get. So yeah, the Ethereum network then created this capability around virtual machines, which created an, another round of innovation specifically around DeFi. So Bitcoin, it's a global permissionless open clearance and settlement system. And when we think about DeFi protocols, we're seeing other financial market infrastructure services being now produced by similar self-executing code. So in the case of the Uniswap protocol, it's an automated market maker trading protocol. Basically what it allows is in a peer-to-peer market, you now can have price discovery and trading happening on a non-intermediated basis with two different types of users. First are the liquidity providers, which contribute liquidity for a given pair of tokens. They can put a range limit order where inside of that range limit order, they'll, they'll provide liquidity on both the buy and sell side. And then they earn fees as a function of of trades being executed against that liquidity contribution. And then you have the the traders or the swappers, which trade against the liquidity in in those pools. A very important type of swapper is is an arbitrager who's looking at prices across DeFi, centralized exchanges, and uh, bringing prices in equilibrium across this globalized trading system. I'm curious, when you take people through that story in this policymaker legislative role, do they immediately appreciate why this is valuable and useful part of the future of the financial system? Or do you have to then explain why Uniswap or things like Uniswap deserve to exist? 
What's interesting is the types of policymakers that tend to get it more quickly are the ones that are familiar with a lot of the constraints in the existing financial system. And we tend to see kind of the quickest uptake by those policymakers. Also, those that are, you know, laser focused on bringing more efficiency to things like capital formation. It's it's not a coincidence that our chair of the House Financial Services Committee, Patrick McHenry, uh, was focused on the JOBS Act and making it easier for small and medium-sized enterprises to raise capital without having to go through the full you know, IPO process. And so blockchain technology actually introduces a lot of efficiencies that if properly integrated by our capital markets regulator could create new efficiency around capital formation for small and, and medium-sized enterprises through, just to give you an example, a permissionless global settlement layer on which you could build applications that could facilitate price discovery and capital formation for securities tokens. That to me is really one of the reasons why DeFi deserves to exist, right? Is like access to capital and access to investment opportunity, right? Like in the US, we have, I think, a rule that was originally intended to protect investors who maybe weren't savvy from unscrupulous scammers, which says you have to be an accredited investor. But it's really a means test, right? It's like, how much capital do you have? It's not a SAT exam where you're validating intelligence or ability to conduct due diligence on an investment. It's just, are you wealthy or not? Which has always struck me as being unnecessarily limiting. But there's also all sorts of rules around how you can raise capital. Again, I think initially probably well-meaning in trying to limit opportunity for investment scams. But it does make it really hard to do small-scale fundraising. I remember even when platforms like Kickstarter were running into issues uh, with certain projects that were trying to, to gain kind of crowdfunding support on their platform. I love that use case. One of the things that I, I wonder, though, is as DeFi continues to evolve, and I think it would be fair to characterize like the automated market maker function that we see in a lot of DeFi platforms as being stage one of DeFi, and we'll see more and more kind of composable building blocks over time start to emerge. I'm sure you all are working on some additional functionality there. Does DeFi become used by the average financial services consumer? Or is it really end up being financial infrastructure that new or existing businesses in the financial services arena lean on to maybe improve the current process, but it's largely hidden from the average person? Yeah, I think we're at the point in the DeFi adoption curve where we're moving from the advanced crypto investor, which is comfortable with self-custody and storing their own private keys or, or using a service that stores it for them, to what we see as the median crypto user, which currently you know might be relying on one of the centralized exchanges. And actually, sure. Chainalysis data shows that there's been actually a migration, the extent of which it's a little bit ambiguous, but, but certainly there's been a migration of crypto digital assets from centralized exchanges to self-custody wallets as credit risk has become a serious issue as it relates to the centralized exchanges. And so I think as more and more DeFi Web3 companies develop tools that make the decentralized ecosystem more user-friendly, I think we're going to see a lot of those users getting into the space. And I think as we see more regulatory certainty as well, then we'll see another phase of adoption as more people get into the, the ecosystem and more products become available in the in, in the ecosystem as well. That's exciting. I mean, and for me, at least a little counterintuitive, right? Like I assumed complexity would continue to increase in DeFi, more exotic or sophisticated kind of financial primitives emerge, and it becomes almost untouchable by, you know, someone like me, who's kind of like casually savvy, I have a MetaMask wallet, I have some crypto in it, but I'm not farming a token 
with a vast percentage of my economic uh, wealth. It's in much tamer places. But if you all are building for ease of use, I think that's exciting. It seems like it's the right forcing function on the overall financial system to improve. So that's pretty cool. And I guess that makes sense why you all jumped into NFTs as well, right? That's certainly a retail investor. Yeah, I mean, NFTs are a great use case of uh, you know blockchain technology and permissionless blockchain networks and creating a mechanism for creators anywhere in the world to be able to you know engage in price discovery for the value of their creations is, is really powerful and creates some really powerful incentives. You know, stepping back, and highlighting a point I just brought up, like the, the potential benefits to the creator economy. When we look at public blockchain and permissionless protocols, like the Uniswap protocol or other permissionless protocols, what's really powerful about them that I want to highlight is that they are permissionless, global, and transparent by default. So you can take these primitives, you can build permissioned you know, networks on top of these primitives, but at root, it's a common base layer that anybody anywhere in the world can build applications toward. And that to me is really powerful in terms of financial inclusion. You know, the barriers to entry before we had this blockchain-based ecosystem, where if you had a new financial services app, you had to get an intermediary. You had to get go through the gatekeeper to deliver potential financial services. But through self-executing smart contract code, anybody can can build new financial services and new financial primitives. And so that that to me is really powerful. And one of the, the vectors that we're seeing that we have a lot of potential in this technology and this. Technology. I completely agree with that. And I think the critics of crypto writ large would say, well, yes, that permissionless non-intermediary experience is what led to a lot of the fraud and kind of blow ups that we saw in 2022. But interestingly, I think it doesn't seem like that impacted DeFi in the same way that you know, we saw it wipe out a large amount of wealth that was connected into the centralized exchanges who were kind of behind some of the bigger frauds. Like talk about your perspective on on that situation a little bit. The custody risk that you know we saw with FTX is a new chapter in an old story that's been around since the time of Hammurabi, at least probably before that. I.e., you can't trust your custodian. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you custody your assets with somebody that creates a massive incentive if they're unscrupulous to you know misuse your misuse your assets. When the Bitcoin protocol was developed, that was exactly the problem they were trying to solve for. And so the rise of centralized exchanges was a trade-off between well, let's create some efficiency and a better user experience, but we're going to trade for that. We're going to assume some custody risk. And I think now there's a recognition that the crypto industry needs to go back to its roots, which is not to say that all digital asset activity should go through DeFi and DeFi interfaces. But there is now pressure on policymakers to come up with rules for the centralized custodians to you know, make sure that their accounting for reserves don't miss don't misuse customer digital assets or cash assets. And you know that's going to happen, I think. It's already happening when it comes to MICA, their state-level regulation pushing in that direction in the U.S. as well. Uh, we may see some federal legislation in the next year or two as well. So I think that's the lesson learned. We need better oversight of the centralized intermediaries. And when it comes to DeFi development, we need to create a user experience that, that makes the DeFi space more attractive relative to the uh, centralized space. It seems like it's unlikely we get away from intermediaries entirely for everyone. I don't work on my car. I didn't build my own house. Like there's lots of things where I use a third party who has expertise that I don't personally possess. And it works out better for both of us, right? Someone earns a reasonable fee for doing that work and I get you know the outcome I'm seeking. When I imagine the future, 
and this is why I was asking the question earlier about is DeFi for institutions or is it is it actually for end users? Because I have a hard time given the user experience today, imagining you know a large portion of the population feels comfortable operating in that world. Like it's confusing, it's a little bit intimidating, it's technically complex. But I think you can actually drive to that simplified user experience that also gives you transparency and openness like that's actually really really powerful so we have to solve that ux gap somehow and if if we can pull that off that might be the magic formula the future as we see it is you have uh, a universe of composable protocol primitives which are permissionless anybody can can leverage them and then stacks of them are combined for particular purposes and then we see interface providers leveraging those primitives and competing with one another to create the best user experience and that's a, a win-win for everybody so um, I think that's how the incentives you know we think are gonna align. And that openness at the back end, I think, probably increases the difficulty level of a misbehaving intermediary. Like one of the biggest challenges, I think, in the current financial system, you tell me if I'm wrong on this, is like there are very large incumbents. Like we've only seen consolidation for decades in the U.S. banking system. And so there are fewer and fewer providers riding on you know a narrower and narrower set of rails and so someone misbehaves well you don't have an alternative in market right there's not a there's not a way to say well i want i want to execute a trade someplace else or i want to i want to store my money someplace else like and so if you're able to pull off that vision of the future with openness at the infrastructure level a degree of transparency that doesn't exist today it seems like that changes a bit of the balance of power that i think contributes to some of the issues that we see in the ecosystem currently right when I was a regulator at the CFTC after the financial crisis, you know, we were tasked with regulating the over-the-counter swaps markets, which um, you know were at the epicenter of the financial crisis. And so, one of the things that we we focused on is how do we democratize this asset class because so much of the market was concentrated um, in terms of market making, in terms of you know dealing swaps was was highly concentrated among uh, a handful of you know Wall Street bank and other globally significant systemically important banks, GSIBs. And depending on the type of product you were trading, you might only have, you know, one dealer willing to make a market in those products. This cartel-like system was reinforced by barriers to access to the leading trading platforms. So there were things like host name give-ups, you know, the confirmations on trades that were executed on the, the platforms where buy-side firms would trade. Um, even if the trade was executed anonymously, the dealer could see who their counterparty was. And if they were on a, you know, what was supposed to be a dealer-to-dealer -dealer platform and they saw their counterparty was, let's say, a buy-side firm, uh, then they might get upset and tell the and complain to, to the operator of the platform. And this is, you know, this is all public record, CFTC, lot, lots of meetings, lots of rulemakings um, on this topic, lots of speeches. What's really powerful about a financial system built on blockchain, built on public permissionless blockchains, is that it's transparent and competitive by default. You have to actually introduce, you know, walled gardens and build them on top of the permissionless platform. And then there's another benefit, which is uh, in terms of the development of, you know, new financial tools. Through the use of a common base layer, like the Ethereum network, anyone can build new financial products and you don't have the gatekeeper of, you know, let's say the largest banks that would have to bless a particular new way of doing things. Um, in a lot of cases, their decision to adopt new technologies and new approaches um, is going to be informed by their market power. It's amazing. Actually, you tweeted out just a couple of days ago a link to a Bloomberg story 
talking about the fact that it appears that TradFi blockchain use case volumes are approaching, maybe even exceeding crypto volumes. Talk a little bit about this because it, it was also thematically kept coming up in, in my recent trip to Switzerland for the World Economic Forum conference was how much TradFi seemed to be taking an interest in blockchain or digital ledger technology and tokenization of real world assets seemed to be a big theme. So curious your perspective on that and then maybe connect it into, you know, what's Uniswap's position in this? Like, how do you all play in that type of world or do you at all? We're already seeing the DeFi and the TradFi boundary Mm -hmm. blurring. In Singapore, they launched Project Guardian back in uh, in May, I think it was. And they brought together DBS Bank and JP Morgan and had them tokenize some some, some different types of financial assets, Singaporean dollars, Singaporean bonds among them. And these tokenized assets were then traded through a fork of the Uniswap protocol as well as the Aave protocol. And in the process, they also developed a framework for verified credentials, which is a form of digital identity identity that they were working towards and encouraging over there in Singapore. Similarly, in the Bank of International Settlements, the bank that intermediates central bank to central bank settlements across the globe, is also has launched a pilot called Project Mariana, which is looking at doing something similar as Guardian, but specifically for CBDC FX and specifically using an automated market maker protocol. These use cases are already happening, and as we see more and more financial traditional financial instruments being tokenized or digitized, uh, we're going to see kind of the next phase, which is digitally native market infrastructures, i.e. settlement and trading systems being leveraged to deliver financial service market infrastructure functions in a code-based self-executing protocol. These are all exciting you know, developments that are that are happening kind of you know, parallel to the theatrics we see here in the U.S. around crypto, you know, outside the U.S. I mean, in the U.S. as well, too. There's a lot of uh, great regulators at the Fed and elsewhere looking at similar issues. But outside the U.S., it's really interesting how uh, the lines between DeFi and TradFi are blurring. What we expect is, just as we were talking earlier, for TradFi players, for players that are providing access to Web3 users, regardless, they're all leveraging these primitives. You know, the fact that so much of the ecosystem is open source makes progress on building new services all the quicker and more efficient and more competitive. It strikes me, too. I wonder how much the international angle is being driven by the fact that U.S. large banking's dominance factor globally and that you've got upstarts who are looking for position to really challenge that dominance and and regain some market share, like coming from all angles. One of the other tweets you dropped recently that I found fascinating was about the credit card companies and their profit off of their customers being kind of unbalanced towards profiting from low-income users with rewards accruing unevenly to high-income users. And you suggested that DeFi may be a way of resetting the balance there and removing some of that what appeared to be pretty predatory behavior. Talk more about that. I love the the idea of fixing the problem, but it wasn't totally clear to me how something like DeFi plays into the revolving credit markets. Yeah, I mean, this is one of these areas where public-private partnership could really deliver results for consumers. There is uh, an initiative out of the CFPB 
to make consumer financial data more portable across different service providers, banks, and, and fintech services to create a more competitive marketplace for consumer products. DeFi could actually have a really valuable role in realizing that vision of open finance. To use an example, like a middle class, uh, upper middle class of mortgages, for example, you can go on bankrate.com or similar websites. I think Zillow has one too. And you'll kind of get an indicative interest rate for property of X amount and you know Y zip code. But you won't actually get an actionable quote that you can actually like say, okay, I'll take it um, until you go through the bank's credit check and KYC process. And so you could envision a future where all the identifying information needed to get an actionable quote is tokenized through zero knowledge proof. So you know, you're, you're getting kind of the material information on a particular consumer, but you're not getting you know, all the information that might you know create privacy concerns. And instead of the consumer going to each individual bank and trying to you know manually put them in competition you could have a defi lending protocol whereby you you disclose kind of the, the material information for your mortgage as an example and you put the different lenders in competition with one another in an open way and that's one of the many use cases that a transparent by default ecosystem can bring to financial services you know we've seen defi protocols implemented to support for example kenyan farmers and raising working capital capital in, in connection with uh, with the harvest. And through the operation of these protocols, we're actually seeing opportunity for these farmers who are now getting interest rates, half of what their local banks are providing. There's these really powerful use cases. This was on the um, Shallow blockchain connection with Mercy Corps. So there's these really exciting, you know, use cases that, you know, benefit upper middle class people, middle class people, the underserved in the developing world, and, you know, potentially also people in underserved communities in, in, yeah. in the U.S. US, where access to capital to launch small businesses is really limited. And the incumbent banks haven't exactly done a great job of building the networks necessary into these underserved communities. And so you could see DeFi playing a really powerful role in financial inclusion. But this can only really happen with regulators recognizing the value of these technologies and doing the hard work of working with the industry to build the infrastructure, to build the products and provide the legal certainty uh, so that these products can be can be developed and marketed and operate in a safe and secure way. The outcome sounds awesome. I, I would maybe even add another benefit, which is potentially you eliminate some of the bias inherent in the, the lending process or credit application process if you're actually constraining the information that's available to make a decision on a loan to kind of a set criteria that are financial history, but leaving out other demographic data that may have been used in unfortunate ways in the past, obviously or not. So that's a, it's a super interesting potential future. How do we get the regulators down that path of understanding and enthusiasm? Because I, I sense right now there's, there's a group that still have some excitement around the, the technology. I think everybody's a little bit shy in the moment post-2022, but there's also a pretty strong anti-crypto segment who feel like, look, this is all really, you know, a big fraud scheme to, to remove people from their their money. What can people listening to this podcast do? What what are you working on that you think has some hope to turn the corner on these things? 
Yeah, so when I was in government, I worked with a lot of the consumer groups um, that are now, you know, many of them have taken very vocal and strident anti-crypto stances. A lot of my job is trying to educate those involved in the policy discourse and level set so that the debate at least be done on the basis of shared understanding of the basic facts and the basic capabilities and limitations and opportunities associated with the technology. And a, a big part of that is focusing on the outcomes intended by traditional financial regulation and helping financial regulators and policymakers think through kind of how to achieve those goals as we move away from institutions being the guarantors of certain outcomes to self-executing transparent protocols. And so that's going to require a new approach. And I think it's it's something that policymakers are increasingly embracing because of the potential of this technology to create new financial opportunities and commercial opportunities as a consequence for so many Americans and, and people across the globe. Yeah, it's powerful. We touched on MICA earlier. I think, if I understood it correctly, this first piece of legislation intentionally left DeFi off to the side and said, hey, we're going to focus on stable coins and you know, centralized exchange regulation or VASPs primarily, and did some important work there, I think, particularly around clarifying what a stable coin is and what's required to operate one. Are you anticipating that the EU will get to some form of regulation around DeFi in the coming year, or is it further out than that? In MICA, actually, there's a provision that directs the European Commission to produce a study on uh, potential approaches to and the need for uh, regulating DeFi. So DeFi is exempt under MICA, provided that it's sufficiently decentralized. And then there are these studies. So the first one's to be done at 18 months, another one at 24 months, and then another one at 48 months after the date on which entered into a law. And so that gives them up to four years to come up with conclusive recommendations as it relates to regulating DeFi. They may actually, at the end of the four years, they may decide that DeFi is sufficiently robust and can self-police itself. That's, that's a possibility. They can also decide, you know, even sooner than 18 months that a risk that needs to be addressed through some kind of public oversight. But, you know, what I think is, is interesting is, so MICA directs the European Commission to direct these reports. And the European Commission itself has already begun looking into how to regulate DeFi. So there was a report published by the European Commission where they retained a finance professor from Holland to look into the risks and opportunities of DeFi and then what a regulatory framework for DeFi might, might look like. And what he recommended, given the permissionless and composable nature of the technology and the low barriers to entry to you know, developing and executing smart contract code that constitutes a protocol, is voluntary standards. So that was kind of, you know, recommendation, the more interesting recommendations from, from his report is voluntary standards that would encourage these developers of these protocols to meet certain, you know, requirements or standards, for example, around cybersecurity. As I said, I think the Europeans are probably further along than some other regulators, you know, that report being kind of a milestone in, in, in what's going to be a multi-year process, I think, in Europe. You know, one interesting thing about the four-year time frame is it's in line with the European Central Bank's plans for a digital euro. Depending on who you ask, that's a, either a coincidence or not a coincidence. <laughs> you know, stepping back, it kind of makes sense, right? If you're going to be coming up with DeFi regulation, it means something totally different if the eurozone currency is going to be on digital rails where DeFi will be the, you know, the natural way to build financial services on top of that digital euro. 
It's a uh, difference between being interested and involved. Last question to wrap up. You mentioned some of the big milestones for Uniswap over the last year, adding direct onboarding, not needing to go to a centralized exchange to buy some Ether to then connect to, to Uniswap. We can drop that step out. You talked about the NFT platform. What else is coming? What do we have to look forward to in 2023? <laughs> Kind of a guiding principle for us is making the ecosystem safer, more accessible for Web3 users. And so, you know, across digital assets and NFTs, you know, you can expect more developments from Uniswap Labs. Oh, that's such a non-answer. Come on. <laughs> I was hoping for a big giveaway. Salman, this was Stay great. Tuned. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we will watch you. Where can people find you? You're you're on Twitter. You're prolific. I learned something from every one of your tweets. So You're probably my most loyal follower. <laughs> Well, I'm trying to get you some more right here. Give us your Twitter handle so we can drive up your fan. Yeah, so it's, um, yeah, my Twitter handle is at Salman Benai. Uh, my email is salmon at uniswap.org. You know, since I took this job, I get I get a lot of interesting kind of cold calls and cold emails that have led to some really interesting conversations. So I always welcome that kind of input. Making friends with strangers on the internet is the best part of the job. It didn't happen as much at Chain Office. <laughs> There. We occupy <laughs> different ends of the love and hate spectrum, I think, in the core crypto audience. But we're working on bringing Chainalysis closer to where you all are in the Uniswap end. Thank you, Ian, and grateful to have the opportunity to present you know my views and you know some of Uniswap Labs' views on what's happening both at the commercial level as well as the policy level. I also have to thank Chainalysis. I think you guys have done a really terrific job of enhancing policymakers' confidence that public blockchains have a role in the future of finance and commerce. I got to personally thank you guys for that. And I do miss working with you guys. So uh, always grateful for these interactions. Well, thank you for saying that. It means a lot coming from you. This was terrific. Looking forward to everything from Uniswap in 2023. Thanks so much for the time. Yeah. Thanks Ian. Take care. Hey there. Thanks for listening to another episode of Public Key. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and our newly launched TikTok and completely revamped YouTube pages where we share our favorite moments captured in this podcast and other great content from the Chainalysis team. And if you have a minute, drop me a tweet. I'm at Ian Andrews DC and tell me what you'd like to see next. It seems that sanctions may be the word of 2023, as last week the UK and US governments sanctioned members of the Russia-based cybercrime gang known as TrickBot. Chainalysis data shows the ransomware strains related to TrickBot extorted at least $724 million worth of crypto, making TrickBot the second highest earning cybercrime group following the DPRK-linked Lazarus Group. To learn more about the new sanctions and the history of TrickBot and their affiliates, head to the link in the show notes.